Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Lovely to have you along for the ride through time and space together. To help support this podcast, and I sincerely hope you want to do that, and to get exclusive videos every week and other content, sign up to my patreon.com site. You get exclusive access to a weekly question and answer session. You know, it's, it's quite, I think it's quite intimate. We really do get into the issues, and I answer questions as they come at me. We run competitions with prizes, and there's first glance at my weekly monologues. And in any event, over and above it all, you become part of the family of time travellers. And it's nice here. It's easy to join. Just go to patreon.com, look for me by name, pay monthly or pay annually. And it'd be great to see you there if you do. Okay, that's the end of the advert. Now it's time to strap into the time machine as we set off on the next stop and the love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. worst wound a society can inflict upon itself. Just 85 years after the Declaration of Independence, the United States began tearing itself apart. The Battle of Antietam on the 17th of September 1862 is perhaps the bloodiest day in all of American history, with 22,654 Americans left injured, dead or dying. As the Civil War ends, 2% of the entire American population have been killed after families, friends and neighbours found themselves facing each other in a truly uncivil war. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. Last week we travelled with you to 1848 and saw one of the most influential documents ever written being published in London. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Hello, fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we witnessed the collaboration between uh, Marx and Engels as they planted a bomb beneath the emerging industrial nations with their communist manifesto, so-called. This week, though, it's 1861 and we're crossing the Atlantic as the newly formed United States of America implodes. We're meeting Major Sullivan Ballou as he marches towards his enemy at the First Battle of Bull Run. Good morning to you, Paul, uh, and good morning, afternoon, evening to all fellow time travellers, wherever and whenever you are. This is the love letter 
to the world. And this one really is a love letter. This love letter is about a love letter. This is one that is actually, actually does what it says on the tin. But before we get to that, I, I think a lot about war now. You know, there's war on all over the place. There's 30 or 40 wars, even as we speak, conflicts of one sort or another. Obviously, in, in the West, we're invited to look at Ukraine, although not as much as before. And war in the Middle East, bloodshed in the Middle East. And I think it's possibly an age thing. Uh, but I think about war and I think about all war. I think about the wars of the past and the wars of the present and presumably the wars in the future. I've written in the past about heroism. I've written about men in combat uh, and I freely admit I've got quite carried away about it. But when I think and write about war, it comes from a place of, well, curious curiosity about how I would be if it happened to me. I read about and write about, you know, last stands and, and, and when men find themselves at the end and have to react one way or another. And I've wondered what, what it would be like for me. Although, let me stress, I have no appetite to actually find out. But I do wonder. And when I said it's, a, it's partly an age thing, I've got teenage sons now. And I've got a 20-year-old daughter as well, but particularly pertinent when I think about war, I look at my son's faces and I think about them. You know, especially with madness in America, there are rumours and rumblings about a draft because of war in the Middle East. America doesn't have enough fighting soldiers to go to war anywhere, realistically, without a draft, without calling up its civilian sons. And daughters, presumably. You know, as I get older, I, I wonder more and more about why war happens and why it keeps happening. When I was younger and maybe more naive, I thought it was baddies would rise up and goodies would, would rise to turn them back. I saw it in that kind of black and white way for a long time. But now, increasingly, I have arrived at the conclusion that war happens because it suits a few cold, old men to have the world that way because war is the ultimate means of pursuing wealth and power. I think that's why war happens. It's not about goodies and baddies. It's about opportunity. There are many true things, many countless true things written about and said about war. One is that only the dead have seen the last of it, which is true. And it's also true, though, bitterly true, to say that war is declared by old men who know each other and then fought by young men and boys who don't know each other and never will. And when it's all over, the old men who declared war on each other still know each other. And so it goes on. But as I say, the love letter to the world this week is actually about a love letter. Really, I would say, subjectively, one of the finest love letters ever written by man or woman. It's written by a soldier to his wife. Love letters are all but gone from the world now. I mean, I'm old enough to remember in movies and so on, you'd see depictions of people, often old people, rooting through a shoebox under the bed and finding a bundle of envelopes maybe tied up with a bow 
And it was the correspondence that they had had from their beau, from their loved one, from their fiancé or whatever, and they kept them for all time. That's gone now. I don't, I don't imagine there are many people, young people now, building up bundles of letters that they've received from their other half. The writing of letters, never mind love letters, it's more demanding of time, I think, than most people are prepared to give. When you've got the instantaneous gratification of texts and emails where you can send and receive in real time, you know, to send a letter is to commit something to the future. You send it off, and then maybe days or weeks, months later, you get a reply. That's a delayed gratification that I, I don't think many people entertain anymore. Because we've got instantaneous options now. And so the, the writing of love letters, I think for the most part, belongs to the world of before. You know, love letters are part of history. <laughs> the writing of love letters, it's, it's a way now. The love letter in question today it was written by a man named Sullivan Ballou. Sullivan Ballou. <laughs> now, if that's not a name to conjure with, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what one might be. Sullivan Ballou. It's redolent of romance, somehow, even before you get to the text. Sullivan Ballou was a major, a high-ranking officer in the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry Regiment that fought for the Union, that being the North, at the first battle of Bull Run, which was the first major clash of the American Civil War. So the stage is set, the ingredients are all there. A man named Sullivan Ballou in the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry Regiment. And that's before you even get an insight into how he thought and what he thought. Surely it's fair to say that a civil war amongst all genres of war it must be amongst the worst wounds that a society or a people might inflict upon itself, upon themselves. Because as we know, as we have learned, although we've been told whether we learn it or not, civil wars split everything. It's the sharpest blade, like a razor. It can get anywhere. It splits everything. So civil wars fracture families. They set brother against brother, father against son. That which has been joined together can be separated by civil war more effectively and efficiently than any other sharp edge, I would contend. America's civil war, everyone's had them. <laughs> civil wars everywhere. America's civil war lasted from 1861 to 1865 and it harvested somewhere between 620,000 and 850,000 men. Now, when it comes to tallying death tolls, there's always a higher and a lower number. It depends how you do the sums. But let's say it might be more pertinent or affecting to say that the death toll of the American Civil War accounted for 2% of the population of the United States at that time. 2%, so two in every 100 dead. 
if the American Civil War was to happen tomorrow and if it harvested the same proportion of, of today's United States population of whatever it is, 340 million, something of that order, you'd be talking about 6 million dead men and boys. And the, the, the bloodiest day in the whole of the American Civil War was the Battle of Antietam, one of many battles. It, it, it was fought on the 17th of September, 1862. So in the, in the first half of the war. And when the fighting stopped that day, the casualty list for Antietam ran to 22,654 men. By some estimates, Antietam was and remains the bloodiest day in US history. Right, so that's that's taking into account the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, everything that's happened since. The, the reddest day of all was the Battle of Antietam on the 17th of September, 1862. That's how bloody, that's how devastating for, for the United States psyche was the American Civil War. The American Civil War was, it's fair to say, in part about slavery, about ending slavery, as far as the, the, the Union and the North was concerned, but it wasn't always, and it certainly wasn't only about that. It began, you know, the North started it, <laughs> you could say, because they were fighting to maintain the Union. The states of the Confederacy were seceding from the Union. They were saying, we've had enough of the United States, we're out. And so six, seven, whatever states before the fighting started had said, no, we're, we're going to be a separate entity altogether. And so the, the North said, no, you're not leaving. But it became about slavery. But even, even once it became, you know, after the Emancipation Declaration by Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, even once slavery was on the table, as part of the reason for the fighting, it would still be wrong to say that every Confederate soldier fought to preserve slavery and that every Northern soldier fought to end it. It just wasn't the case. There were slaves in the North. There were slaves in the South. All you can really ever say about a war is that soldiers fight, if they fight at all. Soldiers fight for as many reasons as there are soldiers. Mostly for soldiers fight to stay alive and to protect those immediately around them on the battlefield whose lives they want to preserve as well. That's really what it comes down to for most soldiers most of the time. But now to get to the specifics of the of the love letter that is a love letter, I became aware of it, the Sullivan Ballou letter, for it is called and known to history as the Sullivan Ballou letter because of a documentary series about the American Civil War that was made by the director Ken Burns and depending on your appetites, Ken Burns is either a legend or, or he's not. And he's a legend to me. He's made many series about all sorts of things, about jazz, about 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 Vietnam, about all, all sorts of things. But m maybe most of all, he's famous for a multi-part documentary series about the American Civil War. And the style of Ken Burns' documentaries I find utterly hypnotic because they're very, very simple. It's really about voices, for the most part, and narration over gantry shots of, of photographs, old 
black and white and sepia photographs and a camera moves infinitesimally across and into these images while a sonorous voice tells a story. And then you go occasionally to talking heads and people, you know, give their opinions about this, that and the other. But it, it's a very simple format. And I would say, you know, you, maybe it's Marmite, but you either love it or, or you don't. And I find it absolutely hypnotising to watch his, his content. And he gave prominence within an episode to the Sullivan Baloo letter. The letter in question is dated the 14th of July, 1861. And in in the opening paragraph, Sullivan tells his wife, who's called Sarah, uh, that it seems likely, inevitable, that he and the men are about to go into action. And as I say, First Bull Run was the first major set piece of the war. So you can imagine maybe the, the anticipation and excitement, fear, all of the emotions that were that were swirling around amongst those men at that time. So he, he tells her that they're about to, to go into action and he wants her to know that he's thinking about her even as he prepares to fight and even as he prepares perhaps to die. To quote from it, lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. And, you, you know... The, I feel impelled. All of it, all of the content is strangely formal to our eyes and ears. And people just don't write that way anymore. Never mind the fact that they don't write love letters anymore. But if there's a moment, is it the moment of the writing or is it the moment of the reading? I would say probably the latter, when Sarah, maybe in the company of their two young sons, and the letter refers to the children, Maybe it's when she opens the envelope and starts to read. Maybe that's the moment that, that you might want to think about as mattering. And it is the moment that seems to matter to me. And in any event, the content of the letter is almost unbearable. I defy anyone to read it and not struggle. It's intimate. You know, despite, in spite of, perhaps even intensified because of the formality, because of the kind of respect that's being offered by the husband to the wife even in the most intimate moment. There's something very powerful about it. Uh, The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most gratified to God and to you that I have enjoyed them for so long, and hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honourable manhood around us. Honourable manhood. Honourable manhood. Who who thinks like that? Far less rights like that. In terms of contextualising the letter in history, as he wrote and as she read, it was just 85 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence that had declared the existence of the new nation of the United States of America. It's still only a lifetime since another pen was put to other parchment. And as it happens, just the other day, I had caused to do a bit of publicity for my new book, Hauntings, and I was asked by a newspaper 
to write about books, just briefly, books that I'm reading now, uh, books that have mattered to me in the past. It, it quite o- you quite often get that if you're publicising a book, journalists will say what you're reading now, and, <laughs> you know, what's your favourite book, and so on and so on. There was a question about what book I would take to a desert island. And I said, I wrote that it was Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Great American novel, maybe the greatest American novel, depends who you listen to. And Moby Dick was published in 1851. That quite takes my breath away, how old it is. And I find it amazing to contemplate how young America still is. All of my life I'll be struck by that. I mean, there's been an England for a thousand years. There's been a Scotland for a thousand years. America is a youngster by comparison. And I, I find that amazing to contemplate. I remember, uh, what would it have been? Was it the, it'd be the 200, it'd be the bicentennial of the United States of America, the 200th birthday. And there was a big do on in Buckingham Palace. The Queen, her late Madge, was hosting one of those big white tie deals. Ronald Reagan was there, Nancy and all the rest of it. And I remember the commentator who was narrating, you know, as they all sat down and before the, you know, we were allowed to, you know, as peasants were allowed to glimpse the the great and the good. And I remember the commentator, it was probably a dimbleby, saying that the, the, the plates in the place settings were decades older than the United States of America. I don't know if that was done deliberately to rub someone's nose in something, but imagine that, that, that you know, that, that President Ronald Reagan was about to have a meal from plates that were older than his country. I, I, so America is so young, is really what, is what gets me about, about the USA, this incredibly powerful, influential force on the planet. And it's a baby. Well, it's a teenager. So... What I'm saying is that Moby Dick was written before the American Civil War, when America was even younger, was even younger. How else to contextualise it? Just two and a half years after Sullivan Ballou's letter, after he wrote his letter, that's that president I've already mentioned, Abraham Lincoln, would stand in the aftermath of Gettysburg, another charnel house of the American Civil War, and he would confess humbly and eloquently his inability, and indeed the inability of any and all, to hallow the graveyard there. You know, he was saying, I've been asked here to to declare that this is hallowed ground because of the dead. But he he said, how can I? How can I do that? As a man still living, what can I possibly say to hallow the ground? And to quote from it, the Gettysburg Address. It's rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honoured dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. The last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. You can be cynical, I suppose. You can, you can, you can concede that the whole thing is theatre. I don't know, but in any event, I'm only human. And Lincoln's words and Ballou's words, words of a quality of composition that's lost. It's as lost as everything else from history. It's like reading something written by grown-ups. 
people who are more grown up than any of us ever grow up to be. And within Lincoln's words at Gettysburg and within Sullivan Ballou's letter to his wife, to Sarah, you can hear men's hearts breaking. You can persuade yourself, perhaps, that you can hear their hearts breaking across a wedge, a sharp blade that is made of loss, loss remembered and worse yet, the awareness of the dreadful awareness of more loss to come. Even as Lincoln was writing the Gettysburg Address and, and speaking from the, the Gettysburg Address, he knew that within moments, even as he spoke, more men were dying and more men would surely die. And so it has been and so it has been. Death tolls, you know, as the centuries progressed, just running into millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. You can hear it. You can hear it in their voices somehow. Abraham Lincoln, interestingly... Well, to say he was fatalistic is, you know, is not is not to go far enough. He had a premonition of his own death. I have a rendezvous with death. He had seen his own death coming. He was persuaded that he wouldn't live to be an old man, which indeed he didn't. And he had had a dream as president, while president, of walking into a room in the White House and seeing his own covered corpse laid out on a table, on a catafalque in the White House. He, was, he knew he was going to die. He was, he, these men often are, you know. Um, Horatio Nelson. He was. He was every time he went into battle. He told somebody that this would be the end of him. He always. Knew, he knew he was going to die. He's something about. I don't know. It's something. I think in the nature of these. Of some of these leaders. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so there's there's death in the air around these people. It, it's it's around them like weather. And then to get back to Sullivan Ballou, he wrote as one who, who feared and or foresaw the worst. Maybe he's just being realistic. But what matters is that, you know what I, I said at the top about wondering how I would be in the face of something like that. I just, that's, I'm, I'm only curious about how I would react to the end coming. But as is evidenced by Sullivan Ballou's letter to Sarah, and thinking about his sons, it means that even as he's fearing death, rather than just sitting sulking somewhere and feeling sorry for himself, he dedicates at least some of his last moments to thinking about somebody else. And the, the somebody else that he thought about was his wife, and he bothers to tell her, as far as he's able to do so, for want of a phone call <laughs> or a FaceTime call, he does his best to let her know that even... If the end is approaching, it's hurries thinking about. You know that. You know is that that could be the last full measure of devotion, right there. You know a man's devotion to his wife. He wrote, "Never forget how much I love you, and when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name." But oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you. In the brightest day and the darkest night, always, always. And if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. Or, as the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead, for we shall meet again. <laughs> who, who does that? Who, who thinks like that anymore? Far less commits it to paper. So, there you go. There's a moment 
there's a, a love letter to the world. As it turned out, first bull run was a Confederate victory. So Sullivan Ballou was on the losing side that day. And the Confederates, well, they didn't remember it as bull run. They remembered that clash as first Manassas. And there was, there was, a, there was a sequel later on, uh, second bull run, second Manassas. During the fighting, Sullivan Ballou was, took a musket ball to the leg and as was invariably the case with those wounds at that time, his leg was amputated. And a week after the amputation, he died in hospital from infection and, goodness knows, shock. He was 32 years old and he was cold in the ground by the time Sarah read his words. And I said, what do you get? From Civil war is never far away. I always think that, you know, the English Civil War, which is really a, a civil war of that swept up the whole of the British archipelago, the War of the Three Kingdoms. Uh, we had ours and America had theirs in the second half of the 19th century. People tend to think, are lulled into thinking that civil war's behind them. Yes, yes, civil war belongs to the past. Well, does it, you know? Wasn't too long before the Serbs had their civil war, and the Balkans civil war, whatever, whatever, whatever. There's always a civil war just around the corner. And it's particularly dangerous. It's particularly likely when people are gulled into thinking that, that civil wars belong in the past. They should belong in the past, but I suspect there's civil wars to come. In fact, I know for certain that somewhere, sometime, there will be a civil war again. And they happen when people are knowingly or unknowingly set at each other's throats by the same vicious old men that always seek war. The same old men that know each other and then send countless numbers of young men and boys who don't know each other and who will never know each other to fight one another and die. So, always bear in mind, always bear in mind, the lesson of the Sullivan Baloo letter, if there is one beyond the love of one man for one woman, is that civil war is always there. And if you take your eye off it for a moment, that possibility, that's when it gets you. Ancient pitches in Kyoto, Japan. The Han Chinese using a net and ball in the third century BC. Early Greek civilizations having a kickabout as well. But the bloodiest forms of the game were to be found amongst the British. Some suggest the Celts and then the Anglo-Saxons used the heads of their enemies for balls. In 1863, the Freemasons Tavern in London's West End plays host to the Football Association's first meeting. Thirteen original rules are codified and the game goes viral. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for this complicated world. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise related to this podcast series. There's t-shirts and there's mugs and hoodies and all of that. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. 
My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince that online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.